You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Man, if you're able to remain standing, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We have a, a shorter passage this morning, verses 18 to 25. If you need to sit down, feel free to do so. Hopefully, you'll hear a lot of helpful things in the sermon. We're singing true things about the Lord as we, as we lift our voices, but this is the only thing that is absolutely perfect in our gathering. So, let's have that kind of attention now to perfection. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, verse 21, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place, verse 22, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Joseph woke from sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. We are continuing now in our study of the gospel of Matthew, and we come to that glorious announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Over the last 2,000 years of church history, two dangerous ditches have formed as it relates to the person of Jesus Christ and his influence in the world. Two dangerous ditches. One of those ditches is the denial of the historicity of Jesus Christ. That is, to ignore and in some cases deny the historical claims of the New Testament concerning the life and teaching and ministry of Jesus Christ. In this ditch, many will celebrate the moral contributions of Christianity. They'll even celebrate the philosophical or metaphorical contributions of Christianity. Those moral contributions, you know, love your neighbor as yourself or do unto others as you would have them do unto us. In this ditch, they celebrate those moral contributions of Christianity, but the thought that an actual man named Jesus Christ, who lived in Palestine in the first century for 33 years, that he actually taught actual men, his disciples, and actually died on a Roman cross only to rise, 
That is simply a fabrication of the human imagination. Let's lay a hold of the moral and philosophical contributions of Christianity, but let us reject the historical claims of Christianity. So one ditch is that denial of the historical claims. The other ditch that has developed over the centuries in some ways is quite the opposite. In this view, all of the supernatural elements of Christianity are thrown out. And only the historical, provable elements of the teachings of Jesus Christ and his life will be believed upon. Now, some of you have heard this story, and it is true. Thomas Jefferson, one of the founders of, of America, the writer of the Declaration of Independence, has his famous Jeffersonian Bible. And in his Bible, what he did is he opened up the Bible and he literally cut out anything that was supernatural, anything that was miraculous. And he kept in there anything that was historically verifiable. And he kept in there the moral teachings of Christianity, but he found somehow the liberty to remove anything that shed any light that this was historical. So like Jefferson, this view would say, yes, embrace the historical figure of Jesus of Nazareth. There is no denying that Jesus actually lived and taught in the first century. However, we are too advanced as a species to believe in things like the resurrection from the dead or the healings of a, of a leper or heaven forbid walking on water or turning water into, into wine. Are, are, we, are we that foolish to believe these things actually happen. So this second ditch is the embracing of the historical nature of Christ and his teaching, but denying the supernatural, denying the miraculous accounts that we see in the Old and in the New Testament. Now listen, I've described these ditches both as dangerous, dangerous, and they're dangerous because if you empty out the historical claims of Christianity and only embrace its moral or philosophical teachings, the New Testament authors themselves will tell you that what you have is no longer a Christian gospel. What you have is no longer Christianity. Listen, Christianity that is not rooted in actual human history is not Christianity at all. Likewise, the other ditch, if you embrace the historicity of Christianity but deny the supernatural claims, the miraculous claims. Likewise, you also no longer have Christianity. Paul is clear in his letter to the Corinthian church, if Jesus Christ did not miraculously rise from the dead, we call this quits and we go home. The Christian religion, in short, is both historical and supernatural. Now, I bring this up, the tension, the reality of this tension, that Christianity is both historical and supernatural because our text in Matthew this morning provides two absolutely essential teachings of the Christian faith. And the first is the doctrine of the virgin conception or the virgin birth. This is a, this is a you don't have Christianity without the doctrine of the virgin birth or virgin conception. And in our text this morning is the doctrine of the incarnation. We'll talk about those two in successive order in just a moment. But both of these teachings, the virgin conception 
and the incarnation of Jesus Christ are inseparably linked. You can't have one without the other. And if we were to ask Matthew, the writer of this account, are these doctrines historical or are they supernatural? Matthew would look at us with a puzzled look and say, why, yes, of course. But, it, but is it supernatural or is it historical? Yes, yes. Matthew would say, I am testifying in my gospel to a moment in human history when the supernatural, infinite God invaded the real breathable space of humanity. What a claim this is. Again, as we said at our, our time last week, if this is not true, we ought to reject all of it as ludicrous and walk away and figure something else out with our Sunday morning, like football. But if it is true, if it is true, then this demands our full attention. So what we are about to explore in Matthew's gospel, in short, is a historical account of the birth of a real baby boy. And at the same time, what we are discovering this morning in Matthew's gospel is no ordinary birth because it is no ordinary child. This is the most important, most significant birth recorded in all of human history, and it's not close. So then let us move through this account with that sort of sober weight in the histor historical nature and its supernatural nature as we move through Matthew's account. Our first movement, if you're a note taker, I've just entitled uh, Joseph's Surprise. Joseph's Surprise, which is an understatement. Verses 18 and 19, read it with me. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So talk about an unplanned pregnancy, an unexpected pregnancy. If you've experienced that in life, you know what that kind of feels like. Matthew records that Mary and Joseph were betrothed to be married. Now, that is very similar to an engagement. Like, if you're engaged to be married, it's very similar to that, but it's far more official. If you were betrothed, you would go to the, the, the city ordinances and you would receive a certificate of, of ordination, of covenant, that you planned a covenant with another person. It was an official document. And then it would be ratified when you gathered together and had a ceremony, and then you'd be fully married. But it's like an engagement. To be at a betrothal is like an engagement, but far more official. And Matthew says that when he or when they had discovered that Mary was pregnant, that this was before they had came together, meaning this is before they had marital relations or intercourse, they came together Joseph is startled. He's undone. He's shocked to find out that Mary, his betrothed, who he has not come together with in Joseph's mind, can only mean one thing. Mary has found another man. 
And of course, you can imagine the devastation and the disorientation that this would cause somebody betrothed to be married. But notice with me, and you've heard this story if you've been in church, notice again with me, instead of making a public spectacle of her betrayal or his betrayal, Joseph decides to cut ties with Mary quietly. And the question is, why? Why? Because Matthew says that Joseph was a just man. He was a just man or a righteous man. And he was unwilling to put her to shame. I suppose this is why Joseph was elected, perhaps, by God, to be the stepfather of Jesus. He was a just man who would not jump at every opportunity to shame the woman he loves. He was a just man. I wonder if this is a teachable moment for us. I have in my, in my notes here, may God grant us the character of Joseph. Even when the integrity of our spouses is in question, perceived or real, may God grant us the integrity and character of Joseph, not to rush to make a public spectacle of someone's real or perceived betrayal. And by the way, generally speaking, I have been very impressed with you as a church as it relates to other people's failings in this church. You've shown great maturity in this area as a church. And I and your pastoral team are very grateful that you've been discreet against other people's or in light of other people's failings. That's a sign of maturity. So thank you. But Joseph here resolved to divorce her quietly. He didn't want to put her to open shame. And then the most remarkable thing that had ever happened to Joseph at this point happens to Joseph. And this is our second movement, the virgin conception of our Lord. Look at verse 20. And as he considered these things, behold, whenever the Bible says behold, you ought to what? Behold. <laughs> Pay attention. Something big is about to happen. Behold, an angel, a messenger of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, there is no other man involved. Relax. There's no other man. Mary has not been unfaithful to you. Instead, what is happening to your betrothed cannot be explained with any human understanding something supernatural has taken place in her. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Later in Matthew 28, Jesus would send out his ambassadors, his apostles to all the earth, preaching the gospel and baptizing all the new Christians in the name of God. The name of God Immerse them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What is the name of God? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 
This is the name of God that is fully revealed in the New Testament, that God is one in essence. He is Echad, he's one, but he is three in persons. What's his name? His name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here in Matthew chapter one, the angel of the Lord announces to Joseph that the third member of this triune God, the Holy Spirit, has caused this conception. Of course, the question that ought to rattle around in our minds is how did that happen? How so? Are we to conclude that some that God the Holy Spirit had some form of intercourse with Mary? Is that the teaching of the New Testament? That God had intercourse with a teenage girl? No, it is not the teaching of the New Testament. In fact, Mary would ask the same question. You remember this in Luke chapter one, when that same announcement was given to Mary, Mary had a question. Look at Luke chapter one, it'll be on the screen or should be on the screen, verses 34 and 35. And Mary said to the angel that just announced this to her, how will this be? Oh, do tell, how will this happen? Since I am a virgin. Verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So thankfully, no, there are no intercourse between God, the Holy Spirit, and Mary. Instead, listen, the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary. Similar to the Spirit's work at creation in Genesis chapter one. You remember that account where the the Spirit is brooding over the waters, not touching the waters, not engaged with the waters, but brooding over the waters. And now the Spirit is brooding again, this time over a new creation, a new humanity in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit overshadows Mary and the Christ child is conceived in her womb. A new creation has come. The result would be in this miraculous conception, the result would be that this child is truly divine, conceived of the Holy Spirit, and this child is truly human, born of a woman. Now, why is this doctrine of the virgin birth or the virgin conception so central to Christianity? In fact, if you want to join any Protestant, healthy Protestant church, they're going to ask you to affirm this teaching of the virgin birth. We're going to have a membership class here after service. We're going to ask you to affirm the doctrine of the virgin birth. Why is it so important that we hold on to this issue? We can, we can debate about Calvinism and Arminianism and end times and what happens at the Lord's Supper. We can debate all of those. Good, those are good conversations to have, but this one we don't debate. And it's not because it's easy to understand but it's because it's essential to the gospel itself. Why? The answer to that question comes in verse 21. Look at verse 21. Here's the answer to why the virgin conception is so important. Verse 21 is our answer. 
She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their what? Sins. The reason that the doctrine of the virgin conception is so central to Christianity is because this child is on a rescue mission. He will save his people from their sins. This child is on a rescue mission. And notice with me that he is not on a rescue mission to save his people from the tyranny of some political foe. Jesus has not come to be a charismatic politician who uses diplomacy between nations. He has not come to resolve that conflict. No, no, he has come, Matthew says, or the angel says, he has come to save his people from their sins. He has come, this Christ child, come to deal with the roots of why humanity is alienated from God. And notice the angel doesn't say, he has come to save his people from the sins of others. That would be more palatable, right? In fact, isn't that essentially the slogan of every modern politician? I have come to save you from the sins of someone else who's wrecking the country. What if a politician came along and his or her campaign slogan was, you are your biggest problem and I have come to save you from you. Like how would that go over in 21st century American politics? It would go over like a lead balloon. That person would not get any votes. Hopefully they would get our votes. But no, 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 no. What is the slogan? The other is coming. The sins of others are what's wrecking you. And here, a king has come, and he says, I have come to save you, not from the sins of others, but from your own sins. How different is Jesus? He frustrated every attempt to make him an earthly king. Oh, great, you can feed all these people. That goes over really well in an election year. Let's get you going. Let's get your campaign going. And what does he do when he's confronted with all of these opportunities to be an earthly king? He eludes them. Sometimes he just disappears. <laughs> no. Why? Verse 21. I have come, this Christ child has come to save his people from their sins. Sin is our biggest enemy and it takes the intervention of God himself to enter humanity and to usher in rescue. Listen, the Christ child must be truly human because he is going to bear the guilt and responsibility of other real human beings. This is not fantasy. This is not theory. This is a rescue of real human beings. And so the Christ child is to be truly human if he is going to be now our stand-in 
as he bears the brunt of our guilt and our shame and the wrath of Almighty God, he is our representative, therefore he must be truly human. And this Christ child must be truly divine. Because in order for his life to rescue for all of eternity, then his sacrifice must have eternal weight and value. My life, your life cannot ransom another. Only God can ransom for all of eternity. He is truly God and he is truly man. He is our representative and he has come to save his people from their sins. The author of Hebrews puts it masterfully in Hebrews chapter nine, verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. This is a call back to the old covenant system for atonement. If all of that was for the sanctification and purification of the flesh, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. At the announcement of his birth is the promise of his death. The angel says to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is a miracle. And he will save his people from their sins. So that is the all-important doctrine of the virgin birth or virgin conception. Finally, last movement in this text. The birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of Emmanuel. The birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of Emmanuel. Look at verses 22 to the end of our section. Matthew writes, all this took place to fulfill. We're going to get used to that word in Matthew. To fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And now Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And for Matthew's Gentile audience, he adds a parenthesis. What does this mean? Which means God with us. Matthew added that. Not the scribes, not, the, not those who copied this down. Matthew adds, Emmanuel means God with us. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Beloved, the reason this is no ordinary birth or no ordinary conception is because in the womb of Mary is no ordinary child. According to Matthew, the birth of Jesus is the fulfillment to the promise that one day God himself would dwell again with his people. Not in theory, not in mere idea, but in reality, 
in history, face to face. As John would write in his gospel that the word, the word who was with God and the word who was God would put on flesh. That's what incarnation means. To put on flesh, John says, and would dwell among us. The enfleshment of God. The eternal Son of the Father enters humanity. While not losing his divine nature, he adds to himself a human nature. God in the flesh. The enfleshment of God. This is a close-handed issue. Virgin conception, close-handed issue. Not because it's easy to understand, because it's clearly taught in the New Testament and is central to how God will save his people from their sins. The God-man, Jesus Christ, the enfleshment of God, not losing his divinity, but adding a human nature. What an announcement. Listen to New Testament scholar Michael Green, quote, what a claim. Right at the outset of the gospel, it is so ultimate, so exclusive, it does not fit the pluralist idea that each of us is getting through to God in his or her own way. Instead, no, says Matthew, God has got through to us in his way. And Jesus is no mere teacher, no guru. He's no Muhammad. He's no Gandhi. No, no, no. He is God with us. That is the essential claim on which Christianity is built. And it is a claim that cannot be abandoned without abandoning the faith in its entirety. Is this history? Or is this supernatural? Matthew's answer, yes. Matthew is claiming that the God who spoke physical time and space into existence has entered that time and space in the person of Jesus Christ. And notice with me, I read this from some, some smart person at some point. I forgot who it was. But notice with me that Matthew is not providing a prayer. This is not a longing. Oh, that God would be with us. We have that prayer. This is not a prayer. This is not a longing. Matthew is stating a fact. Emmanuel has come. God in the flesh has invaded time and space. And what has he come to do? Give us wonderful imaginations of the kingdom of God? Yes. Give us an ethic? A way to live? Yes but he's come to save his people from their sins. This is why I mentioned last week that the majority of Matthew's gospel is given over to the passion, the suffering of Jesus. The majority of Mark's gospel, of, of, of Luke's gospel, of John's gospel, the majority of their story is given over to the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Why is that so? Because that's why he came primarily. In fact, this is what Jesus' name means. Yahweh is salvation. He is Yahweh. God with us. 
the one who brings rescue, the one who, br who brings salvation, which is why the apostle Peter would stand in Acts chapter four and he would preach, he would say this, and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What a claim. So the question is for you, do you believe this claim? Do you believe this? Do you believe that he came to save you from your sins? Or are you at sometimes like me in mind, like so preoccupied with the failings of others and the dysfunction of other systems and nations and neighbors? Are you convinced that he came for your sins? Well, that is at once humbling, isn't it? But it's also very reassuring if he came for you. Long ago, at many times and many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. What do you do with Jesus? Matthew, over and over and over again, is going to just keep presenting Jesus as this inescapable figure. And he won't let us just merely admire him or pull the moral teachings from him. The call is to worship him. The call is to bow the knee and plead, oh God, would I be among your people that you came to cleanse from sin? Would I be among your people? Do it to me, Lord. Save me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, if it is true that you have come in the flesh, in the person of Christ, everything changes. Everything changes. This claim demands our attention and this Jesus demands our devotion. And so we're asking God, would you cause us to be among your people that you came to cleanse? We don't want to pretend anymore. We don't want to play games. We don't want to play... We, we don't want to get caught up in interesting thoughts if we've neglected the main reason why you came. Oh God, find us hungry and thirsty for your righteousness. Save us, Lord, save us. In Christ's name, amen.